0: One thing that's really important to me is creating a care pathway. It's not you meet me and I say, oh, you, you know, I recommend a knee replacement or a hip replacement for you. No, we're gonna take you through the entire care pathway. I want you to have a good outcome after your hip or your knee replacement, but I also want you to be a healthy individual and do well over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years.
1: Welcome to the Now and Future of Orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. And I'm your host, Sam Coates. Over a century years old, Campbell Clinic physicians are recognized national and international leaders in the field of orthopedics. With engaging conversations and stories, you'll hear how our physicians integrate the latest orthopedic treatments and medical advancements in musculoskeletal care through their continued and ongoing clinical research, innovation, teaching, and the writing of Campbell's Operative Orthopedic Textbook. To learn more about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com. And for more podcast episodes, search The Now and Future of Orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Hey, everyone. This is our first episode of 2024. So, Happy New Year to you and your families. We're starting this year off with our guest, Dr. Christopher Holland. Dr. Holland specializes in total joint replacement here at the Campbell Clinic. Dr. Holland attended the University of California, Riverside, for his undergraduate, graduate, and medical school. He did his residency at the University of California, Davis Medical Center, and his fellowship at Duke Orthopedics in adult reconstruction surgery. This is a great episode about the past, present, and the future of total joint replacement surgery, training the next generation, and learning from colleagues worldwide plus so much more. Thanks again to Dr. Holland, and please enjoy this episode on the Campbell Clinic
0: Podcast. Dr. Holland, great to see you. Good to be here. I really appreciate you guys having me. Looking forward to a good discussion today. Yes, sir. Before we were recording, you said that
1: you did your fellowship at Duke, but in advanced training with total joint replacement. For those of us that may not fully appreciate or understand what that actually means and what that the value that that brings to yeah. a clinic. Can we start there?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and you know and I'm I'm blessed to have had that opportunity in Orthopedic surgery, you have the opportunity to pursue an additional year of training focused on a specific sp- subspecialty. I pursued adult reconstruction, which for me was hip and knee replacement surgery. And I really was, was blessed to train at, at a great institution for fellowship where I learned how to take care of what we call primary total knees, primary total hips, someone who has kind of run-of-the-mill wear and tear arthritis. Uh, doing those well, but also more importantly, taking care of patients who have had either issues with their joint replacements, infections, maybe need revision surgeries, and the 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 training that fellowship kind of affords you is to step into a role where you can bring that subspecialty expertise to an outstanding place like Campbell Clinic, and I'm I'm blessed to be here. So mainstream, what
1: year did? Hip and knee replacements really become popular here in the United
0: States. Very good question. So, if you if you go back, and I love the history of arthroplasty. Really, the big transition or change of acceptance, and this 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 was especially for total hip replacement surgery. Started with a man named Charnley, uh, and John Charnley was in England. Came up with what they called the a low friction hip arthroplasty. That kind of gained significant notoriety because he was showing that those hips would start to last a long period of time, kind of late 60s. And then we come to the United States, and we have some really large, big-name surgeons at large institutions here in the United States who kind of took that and ran with it. And once you start talking about when it became more popular to do, we'll say hip replacement, and then I'll touch touch uh, base on on knee replacement was really kind of the early to late 1980s. It became very popular and safe and really good lasting outcomes for hip replacement surgery. One of the biggest benefits that we've seen in hip replacement is really bearing surfaces. So uh, early 2000s, um, the technology changed a little bit in terms of the polyethylene or highly engineered plastic that we use in the hip. And those hip replacements probably would last 30, 40 years. We don't have clinical data because we haven't been putting them in to that extent of time. Uh, but if we project it out, you know, we're doing hip replacements now that we're hoping the patient's not going to need that oil change like we used to talk about in the early 2000s. That hip may stay in there forever, which is, which is an awesome thing. When you talk about knee replacements, there were two big centers in the United States the hospitals for Special Surgery, where there were some really large-name arthroplasty surgeons there, kind of groundbreaking. And then New England Baptist, Dick Scott, was kind of a, a groundbreaking individual for knee replacement surgery there. And he was a big proponent of cruciate retaining. It's just a style of, of knee replacement surgery. He was seeing a lot of patients who had intact posterior cruciate ligaments. That's a ligament in the knee that uh, confers stability for a certain style of knee replacement Whereas the guys in New York were seeing a lot of rheumatoid patients and they felt that the uh, posterior cruciate ligament was not intact. So they came up with a a posterior stabilized type implant. And you had some of these first generation total knee replacements going in again, kind of same circa late 1970s, early 1980s. Some early failures, as you can imagine, as you're uh, groundbreaking and, and doing new things, they discovered what didn't work and they discovered what did work. And then as we got to kind of the early 1990s, you start to see some of the newer condylar resurfacing style total knee replacements. And then as the early 2000s came along, we really just uh, flourished in terms of the ability to do knee replacement surgery, uh, as well as improving longevity and outcomes. Because you know, it's great if a total knee replacement lasts a patient two, five years, but we're trying to really push this to where it's getting to 10, 15, 20, 30 years for them to have a good outcome good longevity, and hopefully never have to have another surgery after that knee replacement. It seems like there's a trend, and there's a trend here with
1: total joint replacement, and there's a trend with many other things in the field of orthopedics, and that's things get really started, and the innovation comes a lot of times out of Europe, and then it gets adopted, and then it's working its way through across the United States, and then it seems like that there's a a tension and a balance between innovation, but also prioritizing what's best for the patient. And so here we are, you know, close to three or four decades later after things have been adopted, A, did what I say is a fair way to frame it, and B, what's the excitement or what's the value
0: to the patient today. Yeah, absolutely. I think you framed it very well actually. And and we do see a lot of this. I'll share one more kind of anecdotal story with you and then I'll kind of address the the patient-centric nature that I think we have here in the United States that I truly do appreciate. But, you know, there's a certain type of hip replacement bearing, we'll call it, and that's the the pieces in the hip that kind of move together, and there's a construct, it's called dual mobility, is all it means is that there's really uh, two spheres that work with one another to rotate around in the hip. This was first put in patients in Europe in the 70s, you know, and now this bearing is becoming very popular in the United States, especially for people who are at risk for hip dislocation after total hip replacement. So they really have set the framework tried and true implants, bearings, whatever you want to talk about from a European standpoint where they have large registries, the wait times might be pretty long to get a a total hip or a total knee there. Whereas here in the United States, we are much more, you know, we've said it before, patient-centric, but also I think thorough for the most part in our evaluation of implant technology, application of these implants and technologies to patient care, and we're more conservative when you look at the spectrum because we want to make sure that we don't have these massive failures. One thing that we're doing here at Campbell Clinic, and there's a big push in the United States, is to continue to establish a large joint replacement registry, and it's called the AJRR, the American Joint Replacement Registry, where every single patient who has a joint replacement This is all de-identified information, but the implants that went in, the surgical technique that was used, the liner I was speaking about earlier, that that insert that we put in a total knee or a total hip replacement, uh, that's documented because what we want to see is in large patient volumes, large numbers, we're talking millions of patients now, you want to be able to identify early failures. You want to be able to identify what works great, what doesn't work great. And when you get all of that data, it really kind of downstream is going to benefit the patients tremendously. In terms of another patient-centric kind of care pathway, uh, which we offer here at Campbell Clinic, but is really gaining a lot of popularity a- a- across the United States right now, is robotic surgery or application of technology to total joint replacement surgery. The use of navigated systems, robotic arms, things like that, to put in hip and knee replacements, really may be the future. There's a lot of different techniques you can use. We have not been able to prove yet because this, this is really an emerging and almost a disruptive technology to the to the industry right now. We have not been able to show that patient reported outcomes are better with navigated or robotic surgery. Uh, but there is some early data coming out of the Australian Joint Replacement Registry that there may be lower revision rates for total knee replacements when robotic surgery is used. So, we're kind of on the cusp of, of really a Kind of collecting that data, large numbers of data, large patient populations, uh, to be able to say whether or not this is completely beneficial down the line for patient care.
1: So, is it fair that the way you described it, that here in the United States, surgeons in the field of orthopedics, generally speaking, will take new and cutting edge methods? And solutions that are created in Europe or even here within the United States or any part of the world. But they're very focused on the end user, on the patient, and on the process. And then they're very disciplined on how they're going to continue to push the field forward while
0: doing it in a very controlled way. Is that unique to the culture here? I think that you frame that beautifully in that we, you know, as, as I go through training, there's always people who impart knowledge on you from their own experiences. And there's a saying in orthopedics, not just joint replacement surgery, but you never want to be the first person putting something in and you never want to be the last person putting something in, right? So we are conservative to a degree uh, because we are trying to make sure that as surgeons, we have the patient's best interests at the forefront during that entire care event. And so
1: when you're talking about You said we don't want failures or we don't want problems to the patient. What are the main things that you want to stay away from that history or research has shown or even real-time experiences for the patient with knee and hip that you think of when you think of errors or failure, massive failures?
0: Yeah, you know, for some of the stuff I was referencing, it's more of implant technology, and that's gotten so much better. Um, but, you know, there's good data is that if you if you have a total knee or a total hip replacement and then you need another surgery on that specific joint within three months of the an index procedure, you're at a higher risk of infection. So you want to try to stay away from that. I think something that's really well recognized, especially in the hip literature, Uh, Besides infection, the most common indication for revision, that's a repeat surgery on a total hip replacement, is for instability, right? So we are, as surgeons, I mean, we discuss this all the time about optimizing cut position, implant placement, all of these things. There's also patient factors that play into it, whether we're starting to investigate and, and, build an understanding of something called the hip-spine relationship and how these different factors play into instability. But, you know, utilizing technology might be something where we can address a problem that is real instability in the hip uh, and kind of address that with technology to, to optimize or minimize our rates of instability.
1: And what do you think, when you think about all your patients across the board, what do they want at the end of the day? When they're hearing, you know, what you have to say, and they're hearing solutions. What
0: yeah. Do, what do people want? That's a really good question. I think every patient has their own unique goals or their own unique success, right? And they, you know, if you really listen to patients, especially even when I meet them for the first time in consultation, and they have really bad knee arthritis, really bad hip arthritis, and this applies to to all specialties within orthopedic surgery, they kind of paint the picture and the story of what they were doing before and what they want to do after their surgery. Maybe it's a grandfather who comes in and just wants to be able to chase his grandchildren around the house without horribly debilitating knee pain. Maybe it's someone who wants to be able to walk their dog the four miles that they were able to do a year ago, but they can no longer do because their arthritis has gotten them down. Or maybe it's someone who wants to get back out to, to playing pickleball, doubles tennis, things like that. So everyone has a different goal, a different definition of success, but I really allow my patients to tell me what that goal may be, and we work together to try to meet that goal. So what
1: you're saying is this is where it's extremely important to understand what's in the mind and what the objectives are of your patient, because then the recommendations or the solutions given, they're gonna vary depending on. I mean, they're all gonna be done right. Yeah. But they're gonna vary on what
0: the person actually wants. Absolutely. I think it's good. And, you know, not to use too many historical references, but if you go back to the early 1970s and the Charnley low friction hip resurfacing that I was talking about early on in our discussion, you know, those were done for patients who had debilitating arthritis, and they had it for years, and they they couldn't even walk, right? They'd be in the hospital for two weeks, surgery took eight hours, et cetera, et cetera. The goals of that patient in that time frame no longer applies to most of the patients that we're treating now. So we really have to be sensitive and understand what our patients are trying to get back to because my goal as a surgeon is to improve all of my patients' quality of life to a degree that they are able to do the things that they were no longer able to do when they first saw me.
1: You went to the University of California undergrad and University of California Medical School. You did your fellowship at University of Duke. What can you say about having a solid academic track record and being very committed to your craft, but then also having the humility to listen to the patient too, and understand what they want to where you're not trying to it,
0: it seems like that's a unique skill set. Absolutely. It definitely makes sense. I think, you know, I'm just blessed to be a product of my training and blessed to bring some of those skills, experiences, research background, trying to stay current in new technologies, new therapies, uh, new okay. surgical techniques, the complexity of different surgical techniques, be able to bring that to the patient population that we have here. And Campbell Clinic, is a world-renowned name in orthopedics. And to be able to practice here, uh, take care of people here, and, and build a name in surgery is something that I'm, I'm absolutely honored to be able to do.
1: And what you say when you think about your partners or think about other people you studied or trained with? Is it fair to say that that's not something you can
0: fully expect everywhere you go where people are going to be extremely focused Absolutely. And, you know, I've been lucky to train at some really, really good institutions, but it is amazing how dedicated my partners here, especially in the adult reconstruction division, are on staying current, producing research. I mean, very active research arm in terms of bringing new technologies, new techniques to patients in this region. I mean, they've already done it. I've just been lucky enough to step into a situation that is going to help me be successful as well. So I'm just happy to be, be a part of that, you know?
1: What can you say about your specialty in this group's interest and commitment in the field of orthopedics to bring you in with a very narrow focus, but then you're also serving not just a pretty good metropolitan area here, but then smaller communities that are affiliated with, You know, last time I checked, nine-plus locations. So is there anything that you could speak to that maybe somebody in in a smaller market that they may not fully be aware of or understand about the expertise and the training that they may be getting that would not, maybe not otherwise be available without an investment in the talent that is here?
0: Absolutely. I think all of the arthroplasty surgeons at Campbell Clinic, and it's really, as you mentioned and kind of framed it nicely The focus of Campbell Clinic is to bring world-renowned orthopedic care in this particular context of the conversation, arthroplasty care, to patients in this region. And whether that's the metropolitan area, other outlying surrounding areas, I think it, it speaks volumes to the dedication that Campbell Clinic just has to this region as well as their national presence. I do think that it is good for patients to know that, you know, when you're deciding on who's going to do your total joint replacement. And in this market, in this environment in the United States, patients have a choice. They can, they can choose who does their their total knee or their total hip. You just want to find somebody who is going to take care of you through your entire care event. And at Campbell Clinic, we offer the primary total knee replacement, the primary total hip replacement, but also have specialists who have been trained to take care of people when things don't go exactly as planned or when there's a complication. You want to make sure that your surgeon has the ability, the skill set, and sometimes it's just the resources to be able to take care of these things. So I think that we, as an arthroplasty division, really represent a very, you know, unique opportunity for the outline region even, for patients to choose who they go to and know that their surgeon's going to be there to take care of them through the entire course, whether that's a successful primary total knee replacement, and then they check in every one to two years, they're doing wonderful, or it's a it's a complex situation that, that needs something with a little more resources, a little more time devotion to it, and, and we're able to take care of them throughout that, that entire course.
1: Excluding cost and insurance, would you say— of the country has access to what you just said, 80% Mm,
0: or less? Good question. So there's a lot of emerging research right now about geographic locations and access to subspecialty trained care. I think where we become biased, and this is an inherent bias that occurs throughout training because most of us from an orthopedic surgery perspective, not just joint replacement surgery, train at large academic centers, and then everyone finds their route, what they're passionate about. Some people go into private practice in smaller communities. Some people go to hospitals in smaller communities. Other people find themselves at academic centers. If you look at all of the large metropolitan areas throughout the United States, there's always at least one large academic center there. But what we don't appreciate is that if you drive 50 miles north, south, east, west of most of those places, there are not academic centers in all of those locations. And if you look at the majority of the population of these surrounding areas, they may not have the access we think they do to the subspecialty care, to the large academic settings, and they only find themselves at those settings if something were to go wrong, whether it's from their medical care standpoint, orthopedic care standpoint, or whatnot. So I think that we are working on, and Campbell Clinic's done an amazing job by starting to establish different locations throughout the region to be able to offer access to patients in our area that may not otherwise have access to the what we would quote-unquote traditionally say the large academic setting.
1: And let's say you take a man or a woman in Group A and a man or a woman in Group B. For somebody that doesn't have access the way that you just said it, what may they not get
0: that the other set of people would? Very good question. So there's a, there's a multifaceted answer to that. The benefit really is the opportunity to be taken care of by a team. So, you know, as an individual, you are doing the surgery. Your surgeon is going to be doing your procedure What we have at Campbell Clinic is a division or a group of of adult reconstruction, joint replacement surgeons, where we discuss complex cases. We meet on a weekly basis, talk about what the most current technologies are, what the most current techniques are to solve different problems that arise. That is really kind of the core of what creates an academic environment that is not always offered at every location. But it'd be very difficult for me to say, I mean, they, they might have a great surgery, they might have a great outcome. It's just when you're deciding who's going to do your joint replacement surgery, you want to make sure that there, there's a lot of thoughtfulness that goes into it. And I think we really offer that thoughtfulness here at Campbell Clinic.
1: To continue to bring care and to continue to pursue in what's the best interest for the patient Is there anything that you can share about where we are today in 2023, coming up on 2024, and why that is significant? Yeah, absolutely. I
0: think that is an outstanding question, and it's something that we need to address. And we, Campbell Clinic is unique in that we have had the most American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery presidents in the history of the academy. That is a body that really works well with government, but it is our job as surgeons on a day-to-day basis to be mindful of the costs of care episodes, care events, you know, the this fund of money, whether it's Medicare money, private insurance money, it's not just going to continue to flow. So with every care event, we have to be cost-efficient, cost-effective. And being effective or efficient in cost doesn't mean being cheap. What it means is, you know, for example, if someone's going to have a primary, total knee replacement surgery. If they have one surgery, that surgery is effective. They're able to return to work, we'll say, whatever their vocation job is. And they don't need another surgery done for that. That is an efficient and effective care event for that patient. Now, if they need three or four more surgeries because the surgery didn't go well for whatever reason or there was a fall and a fracture and and, and things like that happen, that becomes not as an effective or efficient cost event for that particular individual. And if you amplify that by a million patients, amplify that by two million patients, that's where you really start to run into a system that can no longer support the ability to take good care of patients because medical care is expensive inherently But we need to do our part as surgeons and do our part as advocates for our patients to make sure that they have the access, the opportunity, but also the outcomes that support or substantiate what we're doing, right? So hip replacement, knee replacement surgery, we have great outcomes with that. That is very well established in the literature. But we need to make sure that we continue to make these care events cost effective for the patient, for the system as well as for all of the different medical entities that we interface with throughout you know, our entire careers.
1: And I think what you're saying is if you don't pursue excellence and you don't think about things holistically, then the overall cost is going to be f- far more by doing bad work. Absolutely. And that's going to take its toll. Yeah. I read that the obesity rate in the United States is up 26% since 2008, and roughly thirty nine point six percent of us forty percent of adults are obese in the United States. Uh, I may be in that category too i don't know what the uh, i don't know what the pounded overage is actually, but I would assume, and I could be completely off, but that affects your specialty.
0: Is that true? It definitely affects our specialty. You know, I think there are very traditional definitions that came out in the 70s, eighties and whatnot about BMI and obesity. You know, there's a lot of current literature, especially in my field, that's coming out about risks of surgery, complication rates, with your classic definition of obesity. But really, and this is from a joint replacement paradigm that I'm only speaking from, there are certain patients who would benefit tremendously from a joint replacement so then they can go out and be active and do the things that they want to try to do to either lose the weight become healthy, change their lifestyle and whatnot. But we do know that after you know certain numerical cutoffs, your risk of infection is higher after a prosthetic joint replacement. Um, and a prosthetic joint infection is a devastating complication. It really changes the trajectory and the, the um, pathway of that individual's life. So we're really focusing on optimization and, and obesity is not the only one. There's a lot of different things that we can do to optimize patients, to make them as safe, as healthy, as good as they possibly can be before going into surgery that's going to kind of improve their recovery and improve their long-term outcomes with the joint replacement that they are having. But obesity is an epidemic that, you know, is a national focus, and it definitely impacts joint replacement surgery.
1: And would you say, I mean, all data leading that the obesity rate is going to continue to increase unless something substantial happens because of processed foods and
0: costs, inflation, things like that? It it looks like that. If you look at that data, you know, that is a, a very difficult topic to kind of address. You have really multifaceted, I wouldn't even say issues, but multifaceted things that need to be addressed to help bring that rate down. And The government's been working on that since like the late 1990s, early 2000s with with a lot of funding, a lot of different things. But it also comes down to kind of an individual discussion. If I'm meeting a patient for the first time and there's a concern about different risk factors, whether it be weight, cardiac history, whatever, and they want to pursue joint replacement surgery, maybe that discussion between them and their surgeon helps them start on a new path towards a more healthy lifestyle. And we can use the care event and the patient contact with the joint replacement to kind of springboard that on an individual case-by-case basis to help bring that patient's weight down, minimize their cardiac risk or issues, help manage their diabetes, help them with smoking cessation classes things like that you know a good number of my partners are working on a study right now on how effective smoking cessation is when it is incorporated into the care event around a preoperative optimization for total joint replacement surgery so maybe you know these events where we have contact with the patient it doesn't just have to be a discussion about oh i'm going to replace your hip or your knee how can we make you overall more healthy as an individual to get to the goal of knee or hip replacement surgery and the effective, cost-effective outcomes that we want and successful outcomes for the patient. So we can use, and every healthcare professional can use this on every patient contact where, you know, that patient contact becomes a springboard for moving in the right direction of, better overall health and that's when you start to make big changes on a, a population-based level if everyone's doing it. And what you're
1: talking about is personal choice and and then the surgeon's ability and their team's ability to connect and to build rapport with the patient themselves and then they they
0: can make personal choices so you're, you're treating the whole person. Yeah, Is, absolutely. That, is that fair? I, I definitely think so. I <laughs> think, you know, one thing that's really important to me is creating a care pathway. It's not like you meet me and i say oh you 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 know i recommend a knee replacement or a hip replacement for you no we're going to take you through the entire care pathway i want you to have a good outcome after your hip or your knee replacement but i also want you to be a healthy individual and do well over the next 20 30 40 50 years
1: are there enough surgeons around the country in the field of orthopedics and like your subspecialty to really
0: keep up with the demand no <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of good literature about that um, especially with Again, my paradigm of, of hip and knee replacement surgery, there are a lot of projections of how many hip and knee replacements are going to be happening in the next, you know, by 2030, and 2050. And if you were to break it down, that is more volume than the current number of fellowship arthroplasty trained surgeons could handle or do. But something that's amplified that we're looking at in our specialty is the more primary, meaning the first total hip, or total knee replacement surgery, the more that you do, the more revisions there are going to be as well. So the strive to train more fellowship-trained joint surgeons is is definitely out there because not only are we, going to, are we going to have this large burden of patients with hip and knee arthritis that we need to take care of to get back to doing the things they want to do, we're also going to have a larger burden of revisions. And what we want to make sure in 2030 or 2040 or 2050, that the patients who need the revision surgeries don't become this marginalized population that don't have access to the appropriate specialties and subspecialty training and are not able to be taken care of appropriately.
1: And I guess what you're also saying with that is it's important now more than ever to have a great team connected to the patient. And then that's going to create opportunity for people that are or passionate about this field because you're going to need more care and more touch points and
0: surgeons are going to be stretched more now than ever absolutely it, it, that is totally true and and I think an important thing that you know we try to impart on all of our patients is that it really is a team yes, you know I or whoever is your surgeon is the surgeon, but that doesn't mean that every time you come back to the clinic you're going to see that individual it's a team approach team care and as the number of cases that need to be done or the, the larger uh, number of, of surgeries that happen, it really requires an entire team to appropriately take care of that patient. And we could not do it without our team, that's for sure.
1: This may be too blunt to say it this way, but if you're money-driven, profit-loss-driven, and you're not truly reinvesting back into the space, into the field, into research, into the team, you're not going to be able to keep up. But if you're committed to the craft, to the work, to the patient, to the field, you're going to keep deepening your value, but you're also going to continuously be willing to spend money and reinvest to do whatever you can to
0: give people the care that they need. Absolutely. I think the, you bring up a very important point about value. You know, Value is not just increasing the amount of money you get from a care event. Value is bringing an effective solution to the patient while also, as you mentioned, reinvesting in patient care opportunities, educational opportunities, reinvesting in what we do here very well, resident education. So not just taking care of that one patient, training young surgeons who are going through residency, going through fellowship, to go out and take care of the masses, right? So if you can teach five excellent residents how to do Joint replacement surgery, for example, that one person who's teaching those five can impact hundreds of thousands of people instead of you know impacting twenty to thirty thousand during your entire career. So the the opportunity is really just amplified here at Campbell Clinic to make an impact on patients in this region, patients nationally, and really the subspecialty as a whole going forward.
1: What can you say? This podcast is a global listenership, what can you say about collaboration and learning and understanding from
0: colleagues of yours around the world? Yeah, I think it's huge, right? There are different patient populations everywhere, different goals of patients everywhere, different technologies that we implement everywhere. We touched on it earlier on about some of the things in Europe that were implemented, but the Collaboration is something that really keeps us going. And, you know, I'm very early in my career, so I haven't had these opportunities yet, but I hope to pursue them. Uh, A lot of our surgeons here at Campbell Clinic, just because it's a world-known name in orthopedics, world-renowned institution, they've had the opportunities to go overseas, teach surgeons, go on traveling fellowships, invite surgeons from all around the country, but internationally, to come here and observe in in new techniques, new technologies. I think that that collaboration really keeps us going and it forces us to continue to push the needle in the right direction. And when you start to talk about some of these multifaceted issues that we run into, like let's say here in the United States, there might be a system somewhere else in the world that has tackled that successfully and we can implement some of those things. So just as we are, teaching the world orthopedics, we can also learn from all of our collaborators and bring some of those great ideas, new solutions, um, and offer them to our patients here in the Mid-South. What can
1: you say, if anything, that's important about the quality of the product, the material that's being used for total joint replacements? Is there anything there worth talking about for a minute?
0: You know, we, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but I think that the amount of engineering science that has gone into total joint replacements at this point is just so fascinating. And there we could spend a, two hours talking about the history of, of implants and their early failures and what we use now and why that's different. But, you know, there are very large laboratories in the United States that are not affiliated with industry, just research institutions that have looked at all of the different products that we're using, specifically some of the plastic or highly engineered plastic called polyethylene liners that are there. And they run them through millions of cycles to make sure that before these are put into patients, we're not going to see these abnormal findings of catastrophic failure that we should no longer be seeing in 2023, 2024. But I think that the the implant technology has advanced so much, even in the past 10 years, it is it is just unbelievable. You know, we, we hope and we will see... Because, again, as I mentioned, the data is not completely out yet just because we haven't been doing the implantation of these components for long enough to show clinical data. We have laboratory data to support this, but we hope that most of the implants we're putting in now would last an entire lifetime without a question. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: As we kind of get to the end, what are you most excited about? What do you care about most that needs to continue to change? Where do you see
0: things headed? So, one of my biggest passions is education, and that's education of, of surgical residents, education of fellows, colleagues teaching each other, and this collaboration that you mentioned as well. I think the more education that we have, and, and even educating patients, right? And you're part of that care team, and we are now partners with that patient who are going to help navigate through that total joint event um, and beyond. I think if you really focus on doing good work and educating it keeps us at the forefront just by its inherent need because when you have young trainees who are asking questions why do you do this because this is what the data supports and you have to be current on the current technologies the current literature as well as the current techniques so if we continue to stay engaged in education and collaboration which are two of my very big passions and why i wanted to to come here and pursue a career at campbell clinic I think that we will continue to stay at the forefront of orthopedics, not just in adult reconstruction, but just in orthopedics as a whole, as a uh, institution at Campbell Clinic.
1: Just to follow up to that, take somebody, let's say 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe into their 90s. How were they living 20 years ago, and how could they be living differently 20 years from now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially as it relates to hip and knee surgery, there's a big-time investment, and it takes the surgery, it takes the recovery, it takes the patient investment into it, but the investment in getting a better quality of life out of a joint replacement surgery where, you know, we're not going to bring them back to someone who's 90 years old, we're not going to take them back to how their knee or hip was in their 20s, but we are going to hopefully offer them what we would say, or patients come back to us and tell us, uh, kind of a new lease on life being able to do the things that they couldn't do even five years ago. And giving that opportunity to a patient, really, I think as arthroplasty surgeons, not just me, but all my partners would probably say this as well, brings us significant joy when we see those patients back in clinic. They are doing the things that they want to do now. And, you know, being able to take a, have a small part in that truly, truly brings me joy. And that's really the foundation of why we all go into medicine is to help people. So when you get those positive feedback, that positive response, I think it really allows us to kind of refill our glass and, and look at it as being full again.
1: It's fantastic. Thank you.
0: Yeah, this was awesome. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Now and Future of Orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming soon each month. And for more information about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com and also search the now and future of orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this episode, please do us a favor, tell a friend and leave a review. As your host, Sam Coates, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you soon.